ride with me in my foul life. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you to the brand new Dickies Work Wear podcast. I'll be your host, Chad Belding. We're excited as heck to bring you content and stories from all over our country, maybe from all over the world. Guys and gals, the working class, blue collar, working Americans. It doesn't matter if you are a train conductor, a surgeon, a fighter, pilot, a janitor, a professional baseball player, a farmer, a rancher. I don't care what you do for a profession as long as you do it with passion and love and excitement daily they say if you love what you do you don't work a day in your life we want to find those individuals who are working to provide for their family and friends put food on the table keep those lights on that home running be leaders in the community we're all about the working class and that's what dickies is they build clothes and apparel and work wear w-e-a-r for the working class for the american and world workers and we're so fired up and humbled to be part of the Dickies workwear family and that's why we're bringing you the Dickies work aware w-h-e-r-e where are you working so if you have any ideas for guests from around the world we're all ears right in at info at this life ain't for everybody or info at the foul life tv and tell us who you want to nominate to become a guest on the dickies workwear podcast and today i am so fired up to bring you our first guest mr brandon burn he is the owner and founder of american almond beef or almond if you come from the nut country of california where they grow almonds and walnuts or almonds and walnuts american almond beef a brand new supplier of fine steaks and ground beef for your burgers ribeyes top sirloins filet mignon new york strip short ribs and tons of other cuts briskets tongue all of the things that you love to barbecue and grill and cook from a steer are going to be available from American Almond Beef. And his vision is amazing. His history and story is amazing. He is a worker. He loves getting up early and going to bed late and getting ready for the next day. Some days he falls asleep early, according to him, but most days his wheels are turning. He's an entrepreneur. He's a cowboy. He's a rancher. He's a father. He's a husband. He is a badass. Mr. Brandon Byrne, American Almond Beef, the Dickies Workwear Podcast. Thank you all so much. I'm your host, Chad Belding. We can't wait for y'all to see what we have coming. Welcome to the Dickies Workwear Podcast. Brandon Byrne, how are you, my man? I'm good, Chad. I'm glad to be here. It's uh, my first podcast, so bear with me, but uh, I'm ready. <laughs> well, you're a cowboy. Well, um, I'd, I'd like to think I am. Um, might be, might not be, but I, I ride a horse and rope and have cattle. Well, how so could I you guess, not be? You, yeah. you have cattle, you have horses, your son and daughter are both rodeo stars in college and, you know, hopefully moving on to the professional ranks. You have you have roping and corral set, you know, roping arenas and bucking chutes set up on your properties. I would say you're a cowboy. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah. What, are, what is your opinion on guys like me that used to, like, put on a pair of Wranglers just during rodeo week? I stopped doing it after, like, one year because I'm like, 
I have too much respect for the American cowboy. You know, that, that whole ideology of the American West and getting Western. Some people say, well, if it gets you into the culture, put the boots and the Wranglers or the cinch jeans on and your start shirt and go to the rodeo. I, I just show up in a pair of flip-flops or vans and some shorts and a T-shirt. and Because I, I love rodeo. I respect the heck out of cowboys, whether it's barrel racers, whether it's steer wrestlers, team ropers, ropers, saddle bronc, bareback, bull riders. I love it all. But is there anything to be said about the respect of the cowboy and you can't just put on some jeans for the week of the rodeo and you think you're a cowboy at a country bar with some Copenhagen and a cold beer? Absolutely not. I, I think a cowboy is a cowboy in his heart and what he does doesn't matter what he wears. I know a lot of guys wear flip-flops and shorts. They golf more than they rope or, or ride and they're more cowboy than, than most people are. So I think it's just who you are. It doesn't, doesn't matter what you wear. Who's the best cowboy music of all time? Oh, boy. Uh, my favorite from old time is Chris Ledoux. I knew you were say Ledoux. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed his music in the past, and yeah, Chris it's, Ledoux. He was, uh, I think, 1978. 78. PRCA saddle bronc or bareback? I think it was bareback. Bareback world champion. Yeah, if I And at the that. same time, he's going from rodeo to rodeo. Yeah, absolutely. And he's, and he's writing songs and singing to these cowboys at the after parties or whatever, and then yeah. all of a sudden he's just kind of blows up the western underground kc wyoming the saddle boogie band i mean chris yeah. ledoux was the deal oh he was he was good uh, all of this the copenhagen uh copenhagen junkie and copenhagen angel and uh and then garth brooks blew him up when he put his song his name in that song of uh god bless chris ledoux and an old worn out tape of chris ledoux oh, yeah. lonely women and bad bulls seem to be the only friends i've left behind yeah they absolutely uh, yeah yes chris ledoux is the, the american the americana of the cowboy in the west we live out west okay so when it's nothing to go into the mountains here and see some sheep herders on horseback or to go to a town in, in rural Nevada or Northern California and see a small rodeo going on. Um, I think it's awesome. I think that that lifestyle is something that should be cherished. And with the way our world is working right now, um, with the development and everybody just moving out into the country, you know, we have to be protective of that kind of lifestyle, in my opinion. And I think that more than ever right now with, with the, the, the explosion of the PBR, the explosion of PRCA with the world finals, and obviously COVID has it a little bit hampered, but there seems to be more rodeo on national TV. Now more rodeo opportunity for people to get involved in. There's tough. Edeman's got a new bull riding tour. Ty Murray's one of the announcers who was like a nine time all around cowboy champ world champion um but i think tough was like one of the original founders of the pbr and ended up selling it but would you agree like it seems like it's so more vast that when i grew up when i grew up it was like nine days the reno rodeo and that's really all you heard year round but now it's like every channel is rodeo i think i think they're promoting it much better guys are getting better at promotion um there's more money in it than used to be that was the biggest problem. I mean, so many of those cowboys just weren't making anything. They still don't make anything compared to other professional athletes, which is a shame because those guys are competing so much in, in the hardest sports in the world, and they don't get their payment that they need, right? So, But it seems like it's getting better. Uh, there's more opportunity. Uh, there's still a lot of young guys that are getting into it, and girls and, and ladies, and uh, hopefully it just keeps, you know, keeps going on. I know that uh, a lot of our environmental groups are, are kind of hurting the sport of rodeo, particularly the PETAs and, and those groups. Um, 
And that's that's a bad deal, right? We don't want to lose our national heritage, which was, you know, one of the first sports ever. So, well, they always talk about animal cruelty when they bring up rodeo, and let's be, let's make it rest assured. Let's be rest assured that these animals live the life of a king and queen. I mean, they are oh, coddled, right? They are professional athletes, and they are fed better and taken care of better than any livestock out there by far. There is no doubt about it. And the horses used in those events are some of the most expensive in the world, and they are pampered and catered. And those horses are bred and their genetics to do what their event is. That is what those horses are bred for. And if you don't let them do that, you're taking something from those animals. Yeah, and I think that the the idea of a rodeo is so natural and so organic of what is being done you know like if you if you are into cattle there are ropings there are brandings you go and rope cattle you you might have free ranging cattle that you need to go do a roundup on and and you need to go round up all your cattle off of blm land or some type of you know mountainous land that we have out here and you got to bring them into a an area to get them onto into a corral and then onto a trailer and then into this you know whatever it is rodeo kind of combines that whole western you know that lifestyle and that culture but then it has that competitive edge to where, you know, if you if you look back at like the success of some like Joe Beaver and Leon Coffee and not Leon Coffee, uh, what was the Fred Whitfield? Fred Whitfield. Leon yeah. Coffee was the rodeo. It was the bullfighter, right? Um, or the rodeo clown, whatever you would call him, but. There is a difference between a bullfighter and a rodeo clown. I want to make sure that uh, people know that I'm not confused on that. But it just seems like the athleticism and the, the con- competitiveness is unbelievable. The, the, as fast as these girls are riding on these horses and going around these barrels, and as high and as, as hard as these, these stallions can buck, you know, these, these barebacks bucking and these saddle broncs. Like, and then you got the bulls. In, in your opinion, are the bulls the hardest out of all of them because of the size of the bull. I've always said that a, a Brahma bull or a bucking bull is like the most athletic animal, in, including humans in the world. They're 1,800 pounds and they're jumping three to four feet out of the air and spin in both directions. I mean, they're an amazing specimen. They always go last in a PRCA rodeo event. That to me is the crowd needs to watch all the other stuff to get to the bulls because that's the where bulls. the fireworks that, are, right? That's keeping them. Yeah. So, but is that the truth? Because if people really break down rodeo, Brandon, like it's so hard to rope. It is so hard to team rope. It is so hard to barrel race. Absolutely. It just seems like that aggressiveness of the bulls was like so sought after that then you had the PBR offshoot and Tough Edemans and all of these different offshoots because yeah. of the of how popular bull riding was. But is it, in your opinion, the most difficult out of all of them? Well, I, I'm going to tell you that that every person in every event is going to have a different thought process on that, right? A bull rider feels that that is by far the toughest or the biggest, strongest, meanest, most dangerous animal out there, right? And and, and I would say that bull riding is probably the toughest, but if you talk to a bareback or a saddle bronc guy, he's going to have a different opinion on that, right? Because there's so much going on that people really don't see to riding a bucking horse compared to a bull. And there's lots of bull riders that can't ride a bucking horse at all and vice versa. And that's what you really got to look at, right? There's athletes in each sport and some are just better than others at that sport right so you know if you talk to a roper he doesn't care about anything else except roping right i mean that's that they're just pure plain and simple and a few of them do some other sports as well uh, my boy uh 
is also a steer wrestler and a team roper. So he does both, and he did calf roping. So he had three events. But he's got no desire to get on a bucking horse or a bull because he doesn't want to get hurt for his other events. So everybody has their preference, right? Um, one of the things about rodeo that you mentioned, thank God we have rodeo because when you go to most rodeos, that the crowd particularly is not cowboys, they are city people going to enjoy seeing a rodeo, and that's what we need. We need those city people to come, those people that live in town, that don't understand horses and bulls and everything else, and that's, that's the future of the sport. You have to keep those people coming because they're the ones that pay to get in. They're the ones that are buying the refreshments and the food at the rodeos. They're paying for it, right? And, and they're buying their Wranglers or their cinch jeans, and, and they're buying their cowboy hats once a year. All those companies need those people, not the true cowboy, to pay their bills. More of them than there are of us, that's for certain. Yeah, and it's a good point because you got you got to have that crowd participation. You have to have a good MC. Like you have Bob Tallman up here. Yeah. Bob does you know a lot of the rodeos, especially in the Western United States. Um, but... I do. I think that it's the, the crowd participation and the entertainment value. The, the, sometimes they have a motorcycle guy that's jumping. Sometimes right. they have the little miniature dog that's doing the roundup and stuff. It's almost tradition, you know, like when the Reno Rodeo got canceled this year, it was a letdown for the community. Like it was like, are you freaking kidding me? We don't get to go to the fair and the carnival and and then walk into the rodeo grounds and listen to Bob Tom's voice and drink a cold beer and and and, you know, do the things that we're used to doing every June for nine or 10 days. Absolutely. And it just, it, it, it's a heartbreak to see it. You know, it, it, I've talked about it in hunting a lot that we take things in life for granted so much because, oh yeah, rodeo season. Here we are. We're in the Jack Daniels tent. We're doing this, we're doing that. And the next thing you know, it's gone. It's gone. Yeah. Same with the Bob Feist roping that was in Reno. They, they canceled it and went to Oklahoma this year. Yeah. So that's a huge draw for everybody in the Western United States uh, as far as team roping. Yeah, and, 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 and they run that at the Reno Rodeo every year. And all the, top, all the top team ropers are in the Bob Feist Invitational. Right. Um, invite only. And then when you were talking, I had another thought in mind about about rodeo and the, the, the explosion of, of, of it all over TV. And I can't remember what I was thinking right now, but there, there, there is... Oh, that's what you were saying. You were talking about how a bull rider won't get on a bronc and a bronc rider might not get on a bull and your son won't get on a bronc because he doesn't... Well, that puts it into perspective what ty murray was doing right think about amazing like because now you just made me think about the way a horse bucks is completely different than the way a bull's gonna buck yes amazing what he was doing back in the in the mid 90s an athlete right yeah and and you know i kind of consider that uh, a guy who's doing those cross sports he's just like an mma fighter that he's pulling different arts in to become one and that's what ty murray did but very few people can do that or do it well right you can't really, you know, there's a handful of them that do all of them good. I, I got to show you when we, I showed you some of the, the stuff in the shop, but I didn't show you my, my rodeo stuff. I have a, uh, a resist all hats poster from the 1993 or 1994 world finals in, at the, at the, uh, PRCA world finals. And oh. it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, 
Jim Sharp in the middle, Tuff Edeman on the left, and Ty Murray on the right, and they all signed it for me. I I'll went to the there. I went to the MGM. It was like the first year the MGM was ever built, and I was so because I grew up in this community right here, and rodeo was huge here. Absolutely. There's certain play. They got Pendleton. You got you got Cheyenne Frontier Days. You got the Roundup, the Pendleton Roundup. You got the Calgary Stampede. You have the Houston Rodeo. But for still today, the Reno Rodeo is one of the wild. They call it the wildest, richest rodeos in the world because of the payouts. Absolutely. It, yes. It's ten days long. Every cowboy would come here um and it, it it got to the point to where it was one of the top rodeos in the country and so i grew up in that man i was always like man i never i never did it but you i was there all the time with my dad watching right. every event and just hanging on to every word of bob tallman and the other announcers so yeah. i think it's uh i think it's awesome but you you are in, you're in this you're you live the lifestyle you wear wranglers every day you are a not just a, a, a an entrepreneur and a businessman but you your roots like i started this offer are cowboy in that western lifestyle so you're you're ha- you have horses and you feed cattle and you have chickens and you have goats just like i did growing up we had all of the animals um thank God we did because it taught me respect and compassion for animals and taking care of animals and getting the eggs out and making sure that everybody, you know, everybody was going to be warm in the winter and had cover and shelter and all that. We learned that at a young age, you're going through this growing up on the, in this lifestyle, you get to be a man. And now Get, tell me a little bit about where the the idea of feed starts. You have cowboy choice. You have cowgirl <laughs> choice. You're feeding horse. You figure out a, a way to feed horses. Is that how it starts? Is is that the origins of it? Yes. Um, grew up with horses. My parents showed quarter horses. We had cattle. We had sheep. We had goats. We always had lots of dogs. Uh, I I was raised running hounds, um, bird dogs, uh, cow dogs. Have a lot of cow dogs. Um, We've got a lot of horses. Uh, kids grew up rodeoing. We got more and more into the horses. I got into, after college, which animal science was my major in college, after got out of that, uh, at a college, I went to outfitting for quite a few years, probably, I don't know, seven or eight years full time, living on cattle ranch in eastern Montana, kind of learning my skills and, and, and learning more about the industry. Came back to California, was a ranch manager uh, for quite a few years on uh, some ranches that had livestock and also trees and rice. And then I had an opportunity to go f- to work for a feed company. And I went to work for a feed company and I was with them for about 15 years. So when I was with them, I started developing more interest in nutrition, animal nutrition, and started looking at different feed stuff, selling to cattle feedlots and dairy uh, primarily. So then when I broke away from that company and went on my own, uh, started working on some formulations for my own livestock. And that's where I came up with a horse feed, came up with a very simple horse feed. It's only has four ingredients. Um, it's got, uh, alfalfa, almond holes, beet pulp, rice bran, and it's got a vitamin mineral mix that's in it. It's very simple. Um, it, it does everything that a horse needs to do for a complete feed. We, we, had a horse nutritionist help build it once we honed it down to the end as far as the uh, mineral and vitamin mix. Um, And then we started feeding our own horses and we had great success. So it's a complete feed. Don't feed any hay with it. It has everything in it. So I I did the horse feed and then kind of broke into uh, some deer feeds formulate before we go on to deer how when you say that you had great results how do you what do you see and what's the difference so so with our feed um we started feeding our own horses to have some some science and some data behind it, right? So what we found is a horse, uh, an average horse eats somewhere between 21 and 22 pounds of dry matter per day, okay? That's what he needs to exist. 
So a horse, a working horse, only needs about 11.5% protein if he's working every single day. Now, every horse feed in the country is around 14 to 14.5% because everybody feels that you got to be just a little bit more. That's not true, but we're right there at that 14 mark because that's what our competition is. So what I did is I started feeding our horses only and just doing trials with them. So no hay, no long stem fiber, just our pellets. And I fed three quarters of a two and a half gallon bucket morning and night. And that basically is somewhere between 21 and 21 and a half pounds between the two feedings. My horses are all heavy built, heavy muscle we work them a lot not only do the, the kids do a lot of rodeo but we do a lot on horseback as far as gathering cattle checking cattle in rough mountainous ranches that you can't use a quad or a side by side so we do a lot of horseback stuff all winter long that's the winter months but my horses are very heavy muscled they keep that muscle and their performance is excellent on it and so that's that's what i mean and then i started getting it to all our friends who are who are feeding it and uh we've had great success we just uh we're in the fledgling stages of getting advertisement and getting out there across the United States. But, you know, Northern California, we've got a pretty good sales deal going on right now with Cowboys Choice Feed. But so why are you not afraid to give the ingredients like you just did? So on that product, I like to be able to tell people on that product that we only have four ingredients because if you go to your tractor supply or whatever store that you're buying sacked feed from, your feed store, local feed store, pull off your tag on all of these, I'm, I'm not going to name any names on, on the podcast, but pull out your major feed brands and pull the tag off. And on a tag, it has to list in order the ingredients, and it has to list it in order the highest ingredient to the lowest ingredient. So you can look on that tag and see, well, I've got alfalfa, I've got beet pulp, I've got rice bran, but now I have rice holes and I have soy hole pellets and then I have wheat midlands and I have corn. I have all these ingredients and you will look on that tag and there will be no less than probably 10 or 11 different ingredients that you don't know what the volume of it is. They're feeding a lot of these junk feeds to increase the fiber and lower their cost. We didn't do any of that. We have four main ingredients. They're all excellent feeds. Um, there's been only one company in the past that was using almond holes. Almond holes, ground almond holes are considered a super fiber for horses. Their TDN is like 64 to 65%. So it does excellent for a horse. But we only have four ingredients. I don't have 10. And I don't have all these things that you wouldn't want to feed your horse if you had it sitting there in a bucket and you really saw what it's doing for your horse. Now, that's why I said that I'm not afraid saying what my, I don't say what my percentages are but a list of ingredients on, on how we put them in. So when I, you know, we have dry rubs that we're getting ready to launch. And when I do dry rubs, I don't want people to picture that I'm in this underground lab at my property and I'm mixing all of these, you know, I have thousands and thousands of different, whether it's butterflakes or thyme or sage or basil, you know, you got all these different things that go into a dry rub to get the flavor profile okay. that you want on beef or pork or chicken or lamb or wild game or whatever. I work with companies that have proprietary blends to meet blends that are mine that we took nine months to build these rubs with. And now they are exclusively mine with paperwork signed that nobody else can go in there and go, hey, I tasted this rub that has this blow, this brand on it. I want that same exact thing, but I want to bottle it and label it different. You went a different route to where you're not actually working with a company that has all of this stuff that you're naming, the corn and the alfalfas and the plums and the, and the almond holes and stuff. You actually 
own the processing plant and the company and, and the brand and everything that you do it all, right? You take the bag and you fill it in your own center yes. with you and your partner. And that's, and that is, that's proprietary too, to where you know exactly what's going into every bag of that, that horse feed as, and it's not being manufactured or blended or bagged in a plant that's doing it for, let's say, you know, like a, a big, a, an Alpo or a Perine or something that might be doing it for other companies. Absolutely. No, we're only doing it for ourselves. Most of the ingredients are bought or farmed ourselves or with our friends. And we're bringing those products in and putting the mix together, adding a vitamin mineral premix, and then we pelletize and bag at our facility. We're all standalone in, in one facility. So you're not just getting success with your own horses that you and your wife and your family own. You're giving it to some friends. You're getting feedback like like we done with, with, with what like we did with what we're getting ready to talk about in a minute. Yeah. So now where how does it transition into to wild deer or pin raised or farm deer and elk now you have another company that goes right along with cowboys choice cowgirls choice horse feeds now you go into the buck and bull to where now you're feeding wild animals and domestic you know deer and farm raised stuff but you start to see better muscle growth you start to see better milk and doge you start to see better uh, horn growth and mass and inches how does that start Started the same way, was sitting at the computer with a program that I have that we built, that we put the ingredients in, the percentages, and, and we start looking at what it's going to give you on the end result. So I built the buck and bull sitting at the computer looking at our horse feed. And I looked at all the ingredients in California where we're farming and we see deer in the orchards and in the fields, and we understand what deer like, at least Deer, deer, I think, are deer, mule deer, blacktail, or whitetail. They're they're all similar in what they're going to like, right? So we started looking at that, and you know, in the Western United States, if you're hunting mule deer or blacktail around alfalfa fields, that's probably where you want to be, right? The one thing that corn is not good for deer in the long run. It's great to hunt out of uh, because that's where the corn's grown uh, in the wooded areas in the Midwest for whitetail, but it's not good for deer. If you really look at the science behind it, they can only take so much starch and energy. So we took alfalfa, deer love it. We took uh, almond holes because in our almond hole piles, even at my facility along the Sacramento River, every night you can go there and look and deer are trying to come into the almond hole piles. They love it. There's there's natural sugars occurring in almond holes. Um, plus, it's got great fiber, great digestibility. Um, almost every dairy cow in the state of California eats between 8 and 11 pounds of almond holes per day per cow because of the fiber benefits in it. So deer love it. We look at beet pulp, natural occurring sugars. Deer love beet pulp. Um, we take rice bran. It's got great fat, great energy. Um, where we're farming rice in Northern California, you can sit in your rice harvester and look at bucks every single day, particularly when you're close to the creeks, Butte Creek or Sacramento River. I, I noticed that when I was farming rice, you know, those deer out in those rice fields when it comes harvest, well, there's a reason for it, right? So we look at rice bran. Um, we do a lot of pet food grade tomato pumice, which is the skins and seeds. It's got great protein, great fat, great digestibility, and it's got a lycopene and some other things in it that are, that are very good for a deer's system. So we took some tomato pumice in it. Um, we add up some of the protein to get 
to the levels we want with soybean meal, extruded soybean meal, because it's about 42% protein. So we add soybean meal in it to jump that price up or that protein up. Um, so all the ingredients that we put in the deer feed are all great ingredients. No filler, no cheap ingredients. They're expensive, high-grade feeds to go to high-grade deer, and that's why we developed it. And, and you know, we're in the fledgling stages of this as far as getting all of the information and, and getting guys to feed it, but uh, that's the first stages of it. And did you start to see, have you ran testing and samples on it that you actually saw results? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, you know, analytically, it's a great feed. Um, we also had a gentleman that has made some mineral and vitamin premixes for some of the large competition i'm, I'm not going to say any names but but he built some of the premixes for some of the the real high-end deer feeds that are out there we had this gentleman also build our vitamin premix and mineral to make it the best we can for horn growth and for the deer itself no corn we have no corn in this mix and, and that's, that's my biggest thing. I'm not going to use anything in a feed that I feel is detrimental, even though it's cheaper, even though it can add some things to us that everybody's used to feeding it, but it's, it's not good. It's not, and this will be available to the, is ava- will be available to the public very soon under the Buck and Bull brand. Buck and Bull brand, yeah. We build it for elk and deer as well. Now, when you start talking about a deer feed, would this blend be considered a feed only or is it an attractant too because when you start talking about sugars and flavors now you always think about well does a deer really give a shit about flavor well maybe like if he tastes something he or she really likes it might keep coming back so would this be considered an attractant to the way that deer are going to just engulf it the way that i've seen elk pictures of them up on their back legs fighting over it um some people could say they're just playing but i've seen them you know they're real stingy when they're going after this blend of food with buck and bull so is it an attractant as well it is an attractant you know originally we, we built this primarily for the whitetail feeders who are feeding white-tailed deer, um, you know, on ranches, right? Elk and deer ranches, that was the original premise behind it. But I, I would think that because it has a lot of these natural sugars and these products that they're wanting to eat, that that tractant is going to be way better. It's just like when you look at any of these magazines and you have so many different deer tractants now, The, you know, I, I don't know the names of all of them, but I'm, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, there's a lot of these uh, sweet feeds, you know, um, that have molasses or other type of sweeteners in it to get those deer to come to it. Well, everything we've got in this blend has its own natural sweeteners. No molasses. I don't add molasses to any of our our blends like a lot of feed companies do. That's just pure sugar. I want to have sugar that are natural occurring sugars that um, that that work well with these animals' diets. So use it as an attractant, you bet. I, I think it, you know, if you're going to have our buck and bull feed in a feeder and you're going to have corn in a feeder and if you had them in the same area, they're going to eat the buck and bull. It's way better for them and there's more in it to attract them than straight corn. Yeah, it just makes total sense that you're going to get both best of both worlds. And you're going to get an attractant. You're going to bring them in. They're going to love the food. But then on top of that, the health, it makes you wonder how our grandparents ever killed any big deer. Like we are doing things in today's age of, of hunting whether it's through manufacturing of unbelievable gear that we get to hunt in and stay out in the field longer or the whole the whole ideology and phenomenon of food plots like 
There's been big deer killed in the state of Illinois for hundreds of years in Pike County specifically to where now it might have even been hunted out because of the success of that area. Kansas is good. Iowa is good. It, um, all, all over, you know, that part of the, the Mississippi Flyway, the Mississippi River Basin, all through there, you can find big whitetails. But they've been being killed for so long. I have pictures of people out west killing 200-inch mule deer back in the 30s and 40s. So it's almost like, why do we have to change the way things were in order to keep the heritage or the success going in the, like, we almost like control our herd. We grow our herd now. We manage our herd now. There's, there is a such thing now as, you know, deer farming, farming for wildlife. We do it with ducks. We do it with, we do it with, you know, when you farm for wildlife, you take care of so many more animals than the one that your intentions are for, right? Like right. if you farm for ducks like Rocky does, then you got shorebirds and you got predators and you got chipmunks and squirrels. There's so much that that gets value out of that. But it makes me wonder like, do we need it? And you know what I'm saying? I do, but but I absolutely think in this day and age we need it. And and the reason is, particularly in the Midwest where you were speaking of 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 whitetails, right? And and you look at the upper eastern seaboard, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, there are so many hunters now compared to 30, 40 years ago, right? So many people in the woods killing deer. And and if you look at the at at the upper eastern seaboard, they're not killing big deer. They haven't for years. There's too many guys. They're killing all these little bucks. They're not farming their deer. The guys in the Midwest are doing way more food plots, more, you know, there's more corn, there's more soybeans, there's more feed to get these bucks to where they need to be, right? So as we progress with with more and more hunters and more and more people encroaching on more and more ground, we have to give these animals a, a, a kick, right? We've got to give them something more. We've got to keep, keep pushing something better products to get bigger horns to kill bigger deer. If you're just going to freight straight corn and you're not giving a mineral mix or something to help that horn growth, you're going to get marginal size, even if you have genetics. I mean, it, it feed in animals and livestock is the same as people. You go to lifting weights and you're not eating a protein diet to build muscle, what, what's going to happen to you? You're just going to tear your muscle down. You're going to tear your muscle down and you're going to get skinnier, right? Yeah. It's the same in livestock, right? If you're trying to build muscle for meat or horns for growth, you've got to give them the basics to make it, right? I mean, that's how we had to look at it. At least that's what no, I, I love that because then you start talking about breeding in the genetics and you start to get that food into the genetic pool now of, of a deer that eats the buck and bull. And he, he, you know, either she's more healthy, he's bigger, stronger, bigger horn growth, more mass. Now you start to think about genetics and keeping, you know, keeping that food into the genetic line and what it's doing for the success of that line, you know, that herd of deer in that area. Um, I'm excited about it. I think that, that there's so much potential to, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is what Rich was doing with um, wintering ranges for elk on the in the West United States. If you can get this food in an area like that, where a lot of the natural food and vegetation is covered up, and you can still apply that you apply that nutritional value or, and maintain it for the elk herd, all you're doing is helping them fight off predators. You're helping them fight off disease. You're helping them fight off starvation, and it just helps the herd as a whole. And one of the main things that hunters do, being the ultimate conservationist, is, is help the herd. Yes. 
we do take some ducks and geese and elk and deer out of the ecosystem and out of the herd but the work and the sweat equity and the elbow grease that we put into it that's what buck and bull is doing in, in the long run is making that herd stronger for generations of that genetic line coming down absolutely you brought up a good point if if we could get more of these feeds into wintering ranges particularly in these in these states that have such a high winter kill because of the snow load right yep so guys are feeding hay that that's what they're feeding if we could get a better feed in that has all these different ingredients with all these different advantages number one it's easier to feed than hay it can be in bulk in a front end loader feeding automatic feeders and that's very simple compared to rolling out round bells or breaking up square bells into feeders with with the tractor. It's just easy, it's easier to deal with. And they got it. They, they eat less of it because the bulk density to get the poundage that they need for every day, it's condensed. So they're feeding. They're eating the same amount, but they're eating so much less to get what they need to do. Right. Makes total sense. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, I, I do this with the horse feed and what we found with the horse feed on a hay feeder. And it's hard to convince people that hay is it, it's hay's a great feed. Horses do well on hay. They do well in grass, hay, timothy, all different mixes, you know. But here's the deal. Go to the paddock that the horse is living in and look at the waste that's on the ground or in the pen. Everything comes through him. Very little of it is digested. Most of it comes out and you're cleaning pins all the time. In my paddocks and my horses who are fed every single day, I don't clean my horse corrals no more. It goes through the horse. It's totally digested. There's a little pile. It's soft. It dries out and it blows away. And it's the damnedest thing you've ever seen. And, and I swear by it. And, and there's no waste. It's not like horses. You, you throw, you know, fake and a half to a horse. Half of it winds up on the ground that he doesn't pick back up. Yeah. Right? And he stomps in. So same with livestock or same with deer. If you've got less waste in the field and he's digesting it better. Think about corn going through a digestion system on most livestock it looks like corn still on the other end unless it's you're the cracking wonder. it rolling it something it's the eighth wonder of the world absolutely <laughs> so you're not getting anything out of that corn that comes through in the Nothing. manure it's right? almost the same analogy as some of the studies you read on multivitamins for human beings when you start to go and look at the waste in a portable toilet they've done it all over yeah. to where they're finding that they never even got broke down in the system no. and you're in your you know this marketing and getting the wool pulled over your eyes is that it's doing this for you but in reality do you really have the scientific research about how your body's handling it right yes so when you start to say you're studying the waste piles of of the horse and you're seeing it like that that they're breaking it down their body is using it that's what food is supposed to do they're supposed to use it the better you put in the better you get out it's like a bank account and you have this lifestyle going now of you're a cowboy you're a hunter you're a fisher, you're a conservationist. So you're mixing those two now with cowboy blend, cowboys, cowboys choice and cowgirls choice. And then you got buck and bull in your hunting mentality. Your entrepreneurial spirit's there because now you're starting companies to get these out to the masses. You're doing trade shows and consumer shows and rodeos and you're getting it out there to let people feed it to their own animals. And then you have a, a, a childhood friend named Rocky Merlo, who's a, 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 a friend of both of ours. You've known him a lot longer than I have. But now you have this history in this part of Northern California to where now you now you are going into feeding humans. So you have your cowboy part of you that's feeding horses and your cattle. And then you have this 
hunter part that you're feeding deer and elk. You got your entrepreneurial spirit that you're building this into a business. And now all of a sudden, this proprietary blend that includes almond holes is talked about between you and Rocky. And I'm going to just say it how I, how I think I know it. You correct me, but there was history with Rocky's family, his uncles and his, and the, 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 the Merlots that came before him of, of, of having this meat in their freezers when you guys were in college together and high school together. And then you also had some history of the almond beef to where now you start to think about, well, we're feeding cattle. We're, you know, our, our domestic cattle, our milk cows, we're feeding our horses are feeding elk we're feeding deer there's been this huge almond explosion in america through butters and yogurts and milks and all of this now you're like all right well let's test it let's test this proprietary blend into some steers before they go to butcher we finish them from 900 to 1300 pounds on the hoof of uh you know 90 days 120 days to get them there and what how does this come about and what are you seeing to where you have the 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 guts that you're willing to go to a human being and say all right we feed cattle and horses we feed elk and deer but here this is going to be the best steak or the best hamburger you ever put in your mouth that's 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 a great question chad and 35 years ago or so rocky and i were roommates in college and so when even before that, when we were kids, we would always slip over to Rocky's Papa and Noni, uh, who came from the old country of Italy. And when they cooked lunch, it was a spread, right? I mean, so if there was any way we could get there for lunchtime, we were eating beef or rabbit or something that was just excellent. And and as most Italian grandmothers, she she really overdid. So it, it was it was excellent. Then we were roommates in college. I was an animal science major. Rocky was agronomy crop science anyways we would get beef from his from his grandparents to help support uh feeding us other than game that we killed during hunt season right so we ate a lot of steers that were basically fed pasture some hay and some almond holes so that was the mixture that these cattle were being fed it's 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 not exactly what we're feeding today, but it had that taste. They, they slow growed those cattle, and it had a different taste because of the almond hull inclusion. So that lived with us for the last 30, 35 years. Then started getting in the cattle business a number of years ago, and I've had a feed business for almost 20 years. Tim Cockburn and I and my father uh, made a feed business Oh, 20 years ago. And so we were taking byproduct feeds and mixing them for feedlots and also dairies. So I kept inventing different, different, uh, mixes and blends for different type of types of guys, different types of cattle. And then I had some friends, uh, particularly one friend, Joe Feaster, uh, one of my closest friends, he was growing five or six steers just for his own usage. So he was using one of my blends that had a lot of almond byproduct in it. And he kept telling me, you know, for, for two or three years now, he's been telling me, man, you're just not going to have any better beef than this. It's, it, I'm telling you. He said, I've fed cattle out for, for years and I've grain fed them, but this mix that you have is is exceptional and, and it has a different taste. I didn't really believe him. So I went over to his house. He said, hey, come on over. And uh, he had some steaks out there getting a room temperature, uh, had some ribeyes, um, nothing, you know, nothing special that I looked at. And I assumed he had a Traeger or a barbecue, something going, and he did not. He fried him up in a pan and it was excellent. And we had already started our almond beef program before I ate these steaks. And uh, 
I said, man, we got something here. And then we continued on and getting the samples with our own cattle. And uh, it does. It's a different taste. It's a, um, I don't know how to explain it, Chad. You might have a better better term for it, a nutty almond blend um, taste. Uh, I'm not sure how to really explain it, but it, it does taste different than regular grass-fed or grain-fed beef. It is white fat also. There's no yellow fat on it at all. Yeah, when you look at it in the packaging, the marbling's there, but it's not to where you're going to be blown away by a Wagyu marbling, which is a very rich marbling, and you can taste that richness through every bite of a Wagyu brisket or a tri-tip or a steak. Um, some people love that. I'm I I'm a Wagyu dosage eater, right? Like, I have to have it in dosages if I'm going to eat it. If you put um, raw salmon in front of me, I could eat it until I die. Like, I'll just keep filling it and filling it. If you put raw yellowtail in front of me, if you put Wagyu in front of me, I might have two bites of brisket and be like, I'm good. Like, it satisfies me that fast. I can't eat a bunch of it. With the almond, the almond beef, I don't know what to say. Most of our audience knows them as almonds, I think. If you're in the nut country of Northern California where Brandon grew up and Rocky and Tim Cockburn, it's almond. You get your ash ripped. I, are they almonds after they get off the tree? Are they almonds before? I don't know what it is. But when I say almond, Rocky always corrects me. It's like the state that I'm from. Somebody will say, hey, you're from Nevada. And I'm always like, no, it's Nevada, right? Yeah. You know. Is it, tell me about that real quick before most, I ask. Most Californians who are in the farming industry call them almonds. And the same thing, someone will say, do you call it salmon or Solomon? Yeah. Right? Same thing. Same thing. Salmon or Solomon, right? Everybody knows it is salmon. But uh, I don't think there's any wrong way to say it. But that's, you know, that's the the flavor, story. The flavor of it, and I've had it all. There is a there is a pinch of sweetness to it, but you can't have a lot of sweetness in meat until before you go. My ex-wife would always tease me because sometimes I would put brown sugar in my pastas and she'd be like, oh, you had the brown. Well, I did it for a reason, you know, but you can't have a ton of it. You have to mix the salts with the with the uh, sweeteners. That's how my dad always taught me to cook. You know, if you're going to make, if you're going to make something, you not, you need to learn the combination and the balance of all of those for the taste profile and the flavor profile. But this beef, just salt and pepper. Okay. We're not even talking dry rubs right now. It has a perfect texture and it has an aftertaste that people always look at me and say, it's different. And it's not that it's different in a way to where it, it's going to be like, oh, my God, that tastes just like Wagyu, which is not what we're going after. But if you compare it to a regular grass-fed beef, it is on a completely different level. You get a hint of sweetness. You get boldness. You get a little bit of richness. And you get an aftertaste that is pleasurable, which is the main thing for me, especially when I'm eating something that is not marinated or flavored heavy with a dry rub on both sides of it the ultimate test for a beef steak for me is salt and pepper that's how my uncles in the in the uh, in northern nevada the you know all of the hunters that i grew up around it was always salt and pepper there was no such thing as dry rubs when i was in deer camp it was salt and pepper and in a purple onion that was all it was so this steak is completely different. The tri-tips taste unbelievable. The aftertaste is perfect. And then when you move into the burger, that's when you really start to get the profile of what almonds can do mixed with that percentage of fat, whatever your fat profile is for your, your burger mixture. It is an amazing flavor for burger. And I will say that it's the best burger that I've ever had. Now, 
I'm not one of those guys that goes, sometimes I am with music, like Guns N' Roses the best. There's people hear me say that, but in food, I'm always like, well, that sushi restaurant's good. This one's got this good. You know, that steakhouse in Omaha's good, but this one in Nashville is really good. This one in Vegas is really good. It's hard to pick the best when it comes to food. Burgers, though, I'm telling you, Brandon, when people eat this burger, I'll tell you a story and then I'm going to let you talk on the flavor and, and what we're doing here with this meat. I had a barbecue two weeks ago in this backyard right here. I I have a neighbor that's been a friend of mine since 1999, 2000. But, you know, life gets in the way. He's married with kids, and I got everything going that I'm going. We live less than a half a mile, but we barely see each other anymore. But when we do, we catch up. All of a sudden, I look over to my left, and here he comes walking into the backyard carrying a cold beer with his daughter. I go, what are you doing? He goes, man, I was just on a walk with my daughter. I saw all these cars and heard the noise, and I'm wondering where my invite is. And I'm like, come on, eat a burger. Well, he takes three of them, one for him, his wife's at home, and one takes one for his daughter. He writes me and says best I've ever had amazing the next day or two days later on Monday he works at the same construction company my ex-wife does she texts me dude whatever you gave Alex he's in here bragging about best burger he's ever had he's selling it for you people want to know how to get it she sends me a link I'll show you when we're doing this podcast of our website and I'm like she's like is it really this much well you know there's an open link that you can go to the set shows that we have the domain but I'm like no don't pay attention to those pricing or any of that stuff right, right. and He's bragging like it's the best. So then I get a text from him. Hey, I'm leaving on a deer hunt. Can I get five pounds? Right. It's like a drug deal. Can you can I pull up and you just give it to me through yeah, my window? Yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. my point is, is that there is a difference, period. Huge difference. I, I, Chad, I agree with you 100 percent. And and I wouldn't just say it if it wasn't true. That That's the biggest thing. Um, honesty is the best policy. You can't sell something that you don't believe in, no matter what it is. Right. No. Nope. And. And when when we have the almond beef and we kept experimenting ourselves, nothing was bad. And when I took the hamburger and I, I ate a couple of hamburgers with cheese and cooked and all that, and then and I had just one sitting there on the pan, I decided to take some taste of that and it was it was amazing. I agree with you hundred percent. Every person that we have had try it has said the same thing. Um, we have not had one derogatory uh, claim on any of the cuts of meat. Um, this is a different look to it. There is less marbling that is visual. There's less fat. So when you have a ribeye, I, I ate a ribeye at a restaurant the other night, and at least half of my ribeye was fat and gristle that I did not eat. That's, 100%. I, I, I'm very disappointed in ribeyes most of the time when you go to restaurants because a lo- unless you're a fat eater, and I'm not a fat eater, unless you eat that fat, there's so much wasted on a ribeye, right? Our ribeyes have less bark. Uh, that's the fat on the edge. They have less fat. They have less internal. You're not wasting hardly any of it. And the fat is actually edible to me compared to Agreed. other, Agreed. other, you know, um, so we haven't had any derogatory um, statements on the beef in any of the uh, cuts, and I, I sent some uh, to a gentleman the other day that was a grass-fed uh, rancher for 40 years, right? And he's in his early 80s now, and his wife's in his 70s, and they sold grass-fed beef at farmer's markets across Northern California for forever. Um, as they got older, they got out of it. Not that they weren't making money, but they just decided to get out of it and do some other things. So I sent that, I, I sent, I only had, I had one ribeye left and one top sirloin. And he had his 
his two sons who are in their late 40s and both of them and they cooked those steaks and and i said uh, hey let me know how it goes well then he sent me a text back and he he doesn't say a lot right but what he says is always pretty important so he sent a short text that said uh everyone was fully fully satisfied please get us a price list we're going to be your best customer and he sent me a list of all these different cuts and all the cuts that we're not even doing, which are the, you know, tripe and, and tongue and heart and liver and all those things. He wants all that besides an order of ribeyes, right? So, um, you know, every person that's, that's done this, we've learned something from them, right? Um, I, I think the next thing is, and I was talking to Rocky as I was driving up here, you know, and, and, and he made a good suggestion. He said, hey, you know, we need to do some blind comparison taste tests when, when you have a shindig, you know, and compare to some of these other beef companies that, that are out there. Not, not talk about it or, or not tell anyone, but just do a blind taste test and see what really they're thinking. Because I think we're going to be on top with, Yeah, and I want you know, people to understand that we're not sitting here saying that there's no other better beef out oh, there and there's no, no other good beef. There's so many good steaks out there, but you bet. this. This almond beef is different. Uh, did Rocky tell you what happened on Sunday when I was leaving California after the goose hunt? No. We're, we're packing up. We're hosing everything off at the shop and getting everything dialed in, cleaning the geese and um, packaging them all up. And this big lifted Dodge comes up and Rocky goes, must be from Reno with that high of a lift, you know, making his little smart ass comments. Yeah. And this guy jumps out, goes Brandon around. He goes, no, nah, he's not here today. Um, this is on a Sunday. Okay. So this guy is somebody that you know that does um, upholstery and, and canvas tarps or something, builds weird, like boat covers and all yes. this stuff. And he's like, man, he gave us some, he gave us some of this uh, beef and I came to buy some. And I'm like, you came to buy it? Like you, he's like, I got, I, I, I'm ready to spend. I got this much money. He told me the amount. And I'm like, well, did Brandon tell you that it's for sale here? He goes, no, but he goes, we ate it and we love it. We need it. We need more of it right now. And I'm like, well, what do you want? He's like, well, all I tasted was the burger, but I want to buy everything you make. So this guy was like a, a, an upholstery guy and he's just like, I want to buy everything. And he had the money ready to buy that day. I'll be down. So that, and I guess all you had given him or somebody had given him some burger. I didn't give him anything. So my father-in-law, who's a partner in a trucking business that I have, he owns this guy owns Martin's Canvas in Yuba City Martin's, yeah. that builds truck tarps and tonneau covers and boat covers and that kind of thing, right? And he lives in Almanor. And so he drives to Yuba City during the week, then goes home on the weekends. Anyways, I, I wasn't even told. I think my father-in-law took some packages of beef to him when he picked up some tarps. That's what must have happened. And goodness gracious, that's good. So you, Rocky good. hasn't even told you. No. Rocky was supposed to give you the guy's card and have you uh, call him because he wants to buy it as soon as it's on the market. I'll be damned. Yeah, no. he pulled up in his big lifted Dodge, and he was, he had the money ready to spend. Really? Yeah, he wanted he wanted all the steaks and the burger. And I'm like, that's so I walked him around the trailers. I showed him the American almond beef, almond beef logos, told him a little bit about where we're at and what we're doing and where he's going to be able to find it. And he was all jacked up. So oh. my point is, is that we, we will do the comparison test, you know, blind taste test. But the bottom line is, is that if, if something doesn't taste good to a human being, the last thing they need to do is say, oh man, that's the, the, the greatest people to ask are nine-year-old kids. Yes, they if, have. If my daughter tastes 
macaroni salad and it's just a little bit off, she will literally pull the macaroni noodles out of her mouth, you know, as rude as it is. Yeah. Kids are very honest. They will tell you that sucks. Or when I cook the right right duck and I texture it the right way and get the right amount of you know flavor into it, they, they'll just eat it until the cows come home. But if it's a piece of swan that might not be cooked the exact same or flavored, they'll be like, we don't like that. Right. So every time that these kids eat these burgers or these steaks, they're just more, 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 more. I have so many people that have come over here and eaten it over the last 60 days that want a subscription, which is what we're talking about having on AmericanAlmondBeef.com, AmericanAlmondBeef.com, a subscription where you'll be able to sign up, you know, like a butcher box, if you will, or or something. You know, we have tons of respect for Snake River Farms and these and these companies that are doing this on a daily basis. Um, we just have something a little bit different to offer because here's how here's what here's how cool it is. None of this is contrived. My dry rubs are a mindset of this branding that I feel that we can do with this name, the provider. Okay. But it's not, they're, they're contrived. I had to go to somebody that understands mixology and they understand how to, how to bottle these and how to mix them. And they got all the ingredients. Like I said before, right. a, a regular human being cannot do that. You can't go to the store and buy all of these bottles of dry rubs that you can come home and test them and say, Oh, I like this mixed with this and this. But then what do you do? You're going to go to the store next week and buy all those bottles again and make your own dry rub. Potentially could, unless you're trying to go to market with it. So if you're going to market with it, you can't just have a little custom Ziploc bag brand and in your, in your drawer to where every time you cook steaks or pork chops or whatever, you pull it out and sprinkle the dry rub on and rub it in. You have to be able to have it in the masses. I'm talking minimum orders of 1,000 to 1,500 pounds per flavor, per rub. Right. So then that makes a certain amount of bottles, and then you go to, and then you go to market with that. With this, though, this isn't contrived. You are watching this as a kid go on with the with Rocky's family. You already know what it's doing with your other cattle that you're feeding it to. Your horses, your butt, your butt, your deer bucks. I mean, your deer and your elk. You've been seeing the results, and now you have this proprietary blend that you're making out of your commodities and your understanding of food science and Tim's understanding of the commodity business. You own the the, the center that's packaging it all and manufacturing all this with all of these natural ingredients known to that area of California, and now all of a sudden you have the ability to say, the proof is in the pudding. We are not saying that we trailblazed this or reinvented the meal on a steak. We're saying that through our years of feet, of eating it with that blend that Rocky's family and, and Nona was feeding and grand, you know, the, the, his, his grandparents, now you've got this blend that makes it taste and marble and the, the, even the redness of it, the, 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 the experience is awesome. And I say experience because the experience lasts all the way through the 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 final Start taste of it yeah. yeah and the aftertaste and the way it makes you feel it's not it's not the, too rich it's not too rich and it's so freaking flavorful man it's yeah. unbelievable how good every cut is even the carne asada is bomb really? we we okay. have the carne asada we i do taco bars here at least once a week for yeah. the crew okay. it's amazing so you know one of the one of the big selling points for for our beef is going to be the leanness going to so many people that are that are trying to watch their weight trying to you know so many people have went away from red meat right they yep. went away from red cholesterol meat. cholesterol your levels are high and and we have to get more science in our operation to understand how to explain that more what our actual levels are in the beef that we are providing because we can look at it and visually say man there's not nearly the fat in this but it tastes better you can put our steaks up with steaks that are marbled considerably more, and the taste is better, right? And, and that all comes back to, Chad, every animal eats 
basically what he was fed. I don't care what game animal you're looking at. You know that as well as I do. You're talking about the flavor to a, a human. flavor to a human, yep. as far as palatability, is based on what that animal eats. If you got a mallard that's out there in the swamp eating fish and minnows and frogs and the rest of it, not he the tastes same as rice. not the same as rice. I can eat you. You know, you can eat spoonies off of rice, and and you put 100%. them on the spit, and you damn near you can't tell them from teal, right? 100%. Deer the same way, and so cattle are exactly the same way. So we're trying to do something totally different of byproduct blends that are made in the food industry that are food and feed safe. Because they're coming out of the food industry, right? And they're all feeds that we eat as people, right? All which, the feeds, which is so key. That is key, right? Because that, that's how you're going, boy, I know those cattle like that because we like most all of those things that are going into it, right? So, and, and I'll tell you something else. Um, it took a lot of years, a lot of years talking about it, a lot of years for, for before all of us got together and figured out how to do this or what to do. But I'm basically going to tell you, I think a lot of it lucked out for us that we hit a home run in the beginning, yeah, right? 100%. It didn't take us 10 years to get to that start because all the years That's what prior, I'm saying. It wasn't right? contrived. It was so yes. natural because all of the pieces were in place. Yes. And then you add us on as the marketing and our ability to get the message out there a little bit. You have all, it just makes sense. And the it other thing sense. that when you're talking, what I'm thinking about is like this dog right here is Axel is a high powered dog. I mean, he's a master hunter, retriever hunter champion, qualified all ages. I mean, he has got it going on. Right. He eats Yukonuba and he devours it. But it's great feed. But if I, it's, a, it's amazing what they yes. do with the Yukonuba. Yes. But if I I put down a biscuit from McDonald's, he will eat it like it's no tomorrow. It's my responsibility to not let him eat that biscuit because I want him to be a high performance dog. I don't want him to his GI track or anything to be messed up. Right. Same with cattle. Absolutely. You could go feed cattle and they're going to eat what you put there when they're hungry. Yes. They might like your blend better, but they're going to eat something. It's Absolutely. your responsibility as the rancher and the cattle grower and, and the owner of this business to make sure that their, that their, their diet is disciplined. So when they do come Come in, take me through the process, if you will, of this steer's life. I know that you're not going to feed him this blend all the way from birth to death. Like you can feed Yukonuba from birth to death, any dog food, right? right? This blend that you're feeding is pretty much the last four or 500 pounds, last 100 days of a steer's life, 120 days. How does it work out if you can give that if it's not proprietary information? So our goal is because we have, we have beef cows and we have lots of... Uh, lots of friends and family that have beef cows as well. Our goal is to raise all cattle eventually from start to finish. So come from a cow-calf operation where we're taking those calves, they're with their mother on milk and grass-fed on the, on the pastures um, for at least six months and maybe even another 100 days after that. Then they will come into the feedlot, and we start on a blend that is slightly different than our proprietary blend for almond beef. It's a little less hot as far as protein. Uh, it's got less energy in it because they don't, they don't need quite as much then, right? They're gaining more weight per day, but we can't feed that hot because we don't want to get them too fat too quick. When you get too much fat in a ration on a young animal, they tend to quit growing up and out and get fatter, right? So we've got to be careful how we blend that for those weights coming from six to nine, 600 to 900 pounds. After 900 pounds, we put them on our almond beef blend, which is a much higher um, fat intake. Uh, to get where we need to be. So most grain-fed animals, um, high fat, 
uh, high corn, soybeans, um, they're gaining a lot of fat from that ration. Our ration doesn't have a lot of those ingredients, don't have the fat level. So we have to have a few of those ingredients that have that fat left to get to fatten, right? So just like a grass-fed animal, got some friends that feed grass-fed beef, it takes forever to marble on grass-fed, right? The animal has to be over 24 months old, closer to three years old to make them marble on most grass-fed operations, if it's true grass-fed all the way through, right? So you get so many operators that are taking grass-fed, but they're coming to a feedlot at some point, getting fed a grain mix, and then going back to grass to finish, right? That's that's not truly grass-fed all the way through. We're not making any claims that we aren't feeding. We also are purchasing good quality animals as well because we've got to fill the yard. So we're trying to get good beef cattle, domestic beef cattle that uh, are, are fed well, are great health. We're not wanting to inject any antibiotics or hormones at all for what we do. And so far, knock on wood, we've been real good at that. So... Um, cattle are healthy they're getting fed well and and watching them all the way through and and the other part of that when, when you're talking i'm thinking about is now you you know i talked about how you and tim have the proprietary blends and you bag this stuff for the horses and the deer and the cattle and all that in your past and now you're starting to do it you're feeding this blend to the steer for human consumption but i want to make sure that everybody out there in the listening world understands that from the feedlot to the slaughterhouse to the packaging is 100 percent um, the only thing that you don't own outright is the slaughterhouse, but you control that with management and watching it as far as scheduling goes and cuts and timing and ha- how many days are they hanging for and, and aging and all of that stuff. This isn't to where you're going and taking your steers into somebody's feedlot and pay and leasing out of space for them to feed this plan. You are watching it on a daily basis with your employees. This is your operation. So not only are you developing the feed and packaging the feed and the proprietary blend you're also controlling everything from a to z once it's being fed to these steer absolutely we we have a cow calf operation we are purchasing the steers coming into the feedlot we are feeding it it is our feedlot we have a slaughter usda plant that is killing for us but that's all set up and managed through us and them then they're taken to a uh, to the beef cutter who will cut it at our specs and what we want to do and how to do it and hang it on our specifications. Um, so everything from every step of the way is controlled by us. We have our own f- container freezers um, where we're taking the meat and going to distribute out of one location. Uh, so everything is, th- there's no middleman in between. There's nobody doing anything more for us other than the slaughter and the packaging of the individual cuts and vacuum sealed and putting our nameplate and our stamp on it. Everything's USDA inspected and we have the permits at our site to distribute uh, through our freezer site. So everything's controlled by us. Everything. Everything, yep. The sales will be controlled by us. Uh, everything will, is, is in the house. So when you think about the word sustainability and what you do as a, a, you know, we've talked about your story, how you're a cowboy and you're an entrepreneur and you're a hunter and you're a gatherer. Now, now it actually is coming full circle again, just like being a hunter would. You go out, you farm for ducks, you kill a mallard, you cook the mallard, you feed the people. It tastes like what it's been eaten, like the rice. All of a sudden, sustainability goes full circle, right? That encompassing theory of sustainability and what it means to live off of the land and be organic or eat wild or eat what you raise and 
and farmers and ranchers have been doing this forever. There's been cattle ranching for hundreds and hundreds of years. You bet. It's, but like we talked about with wildlife, it's different now. Things evolve. Things change through technology, through science, through, you know, through research that goes into the biological makeup of like what we talked about with the human body proteins and supplemental supplement companies and the way people work out now and CrossFit and ultra marathons and all of this stuff is crazy. It just keeps advancing. So you, you can either be ignorant and say, well, I'm just going to, you know, do things like I've done, or you can go and say, all right, well, I'm going to treat my body a little bit better by doing this. And that might be a supplement that might be a different, a different diet or something that maybe puts better, you know, nutritional valued foods into your body. And that's what we're doing with the steer now to where you could feed them hay or just alfalfa or put them out on a free grazing, you know, grassland and let them do that and then slaughter them and eat them. And that might be suffice to a lot of people. But as far as the overall culinary experience goes for hundreds, if not thousands of years, people have been watching recipes, watching, you know, the way that they back in Italy, back in the day, it was food is huge socializing for so many years over in Europe. And in America, the food sources over here are getting different every day. The explosion of sushi bars, the explosion of high end steakhouses, the, the culinary experience is there. And people, my point in saying all that is people want that experience. They're looking for that hot rock at a, at a cane prime in Nashville to throw down some Kobe beef and see it sizzle on that hot rock or sushi samba in Vegas and see it, see, you know, that whole experience. Oh, yes. The flavor profiles. That's what we're saying is that this is along the same lines of the ideology of, look, we are into flavor profile when it comes to the culinary part of this now. And if to back that up, here's how these steers have been grown. Here's how they've been raised. Here's how they've been fed. Here's how they were slaughtered. Here's how clean everything is. Here's the story of almond beef and why we did it. To me, there's no better way of doing anything in the world of like, if you go and study Wagyu and Kobe and Japan and Australia and the different herds and strains of, of sperm over there that's producing these, these Wagyu you know herds it's pretty freaking amazing what 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 people have done with it and now here we are taking this proprietary blend of the last 35 years by some italians that were first generation you know first generation or they came here from the old country and here we are being able to introduce it to the public and every single person that we have fed it to including your 70 year old friend once more absolutely chad uh and and you you said something in in just a bit ago, sustainability, right? So the Ammonholes are coming from Merlot Ammonholers. He's got two of them. So we're, we're using our own byproducts coming out of our own plants, coming back to the food and feed safe deal. You know, everything we're getting for these byproducts that are going into these cattle are feed food safe coming from food processors. So y- you just can't get better than that, right? Um, yeah, we're, we're excited about the whole business, you know, for our sustainability, using our crops and our products in these beef, raising our own cattle. Um, we're, we're trucking it, you know, we're trucking the feed in, we're trucking the manure out, using it in our crops, right? In, in what's legal to use in California. Um, so we're totally sustainable from start to finish. That, that's something I'm, I'm proud of. And in California, that's kind of the buzzword from all these food processors is sustainability, right? And that's what we're trying to do. And the biggest thing about Ammon beef, there's other people in California that may start feeding more of what we're feeding, but they really don't know what we're feeding, number one. Number two is California is the only place you're getting it. It's the only place there is almond byproducts 
and Ammon holes. You're not getting that unless we're shipping Ammon holes to the Midwest. And at this point, there's really not anything going, right? So um, it is totally different and it has a different taste and, and we're proud of it. And hopefully it'll just keep continuing as we as we progress here, right? And for the customer base, the end consumer base, or the potential end consumer that's curious, wants to try it, we're going to have all different ways of trying it. You can order one steak at a time, potentially. You might be have on a subscription down the road. You might be able to order a package that's going to come with a couple ribeyes and a, maybe some ground beef and, and maybe a flank steak or a skirt steak or something. Um, we're going to have briskets. We're going to have tri-tips. We're going to have roast. We're going to have stew meat. We're going to have, um, you know, a lot of our stuff and byproduct is going to go to, to um, different restaurants and different things that we have talked about, you know, privately. But the end consumer that's going to go onto AmericanAmonBeef.com, they're going to have the ability to try this out. Um, we might have a cookout somewhere where we invite people in and we'll sample it for people. I think that that is huge to gain the credibility in a, in a, in a consumer audience or potential consumer base is by saying, hey, we have we have confidence here. We're willing to give out some of this for you to go, man. We want that in our family's freezer. We want that in our family's diet nutritional program, right? Yeah. It's a different taste. It's a different flavor. It's a different, it's a different everything experience wise. And it's healthy because of the fat and the way that we're feeding these animals, because what you get out of that steer is exactly what you put in it. Like you stated before. So they're going to be able to go onto this website in the next 30, 45 days. And we're going to go to market with all of these different steaks, all of these different cuts. Tell the people a little bit about what your goal is now, because you have a lot of pride in your cattle and your horses and your deer and all of that. I want you to say, you know, what what are these people, what do you want these people to see out of this? Because you've been working on this shit for a long time, Brandon. You guys deserve success with it because it is your baby. What do you want people to come away with after they take that bite of American almond beef? We want them to come away with a total satisfaction of having one of the best meat products they've ever eaten, whether that is burger, steaks, tri-tip, roast. We want them to come back and say, gosh, darn it, you guys got something here. This taste profile is totally different. I agree with you. It's not that I still don't like some of the other beef they're eating at restaurants or ordering as well, but we want them to be happy, right? And we want to grow our business exponentially, right? So the more people that enjoy it, the more people that buy it, we increase our business. We buy more cows. We we just get bigger, right? We have a lot of room to expand, um, and, and we're hoping that as time progresses, we do expand and get more and more out there to the masses. That's what we got to do. Yeah, and that's the thing is that you when you're growing a company like this, you face growing problems from the very beginning because you can only get so many tri-tips off of it once people taste that tri-tip the same four customers five customers that that get to try it in the initial stages when we go to market are going to want that tri-tip every month so as business owners you're going to have to be like man projections here guys how many steer do we need to get right now how many do we need to get them on the feed we got to get you know we have to start this process over and it's an ongoing thing it's not like we just go into the you know have an ongoing freezer full of this meat to keep selling it's a business it's a yes. process you got yes. it's well thought out it's well thought out it has to be scheduled when the cattle are coming in and when their kill date is uh, remember there's only two tri-tips per steer Two tri-tips per steer. Yeah. That's it, right? That's yep. what we get off of one steer. And when everybody loves tri-tip and they want to get a package of four, that's two whole steers, Yeah, right? Yeah. That's a 1,000 pounds of retail beef that come off of that to get four tri-tips, yep. right? So there's going to be a lot of learning involved once we start really rolling um, on how we're going to place these orders and what's the right thing to satisfy our customers, right? And it's, that's going to be... It. 
evolving. As I can't wait. I'm so freaking excited for people to try it. But you got to educate me a little bit. You just said, you know, what we feed our cows. What is a cow? What is when is, does does it become a steer? A bull is a bull from the beginning, right? A bull is a, a male cow with horns. Yes. Give me the cowboy definitions for those three. Well, a calf is the baby that could be a female or a male. How does it start out in the, so the life cycle? You have a bull, you have a cow. The bull breeds the cow. Cow has the calf. When the calf is somewhere between four to six months old, we will mark and brand it. We'll come in either the cowboy way, which is you head and heal it, take it to the ground, castrate, take his testicles off now he becomes a steer at that point so a bull calf becomes a steer when you castrate him okay a heifer is a female cow that has not been bred when she gets bred you can also say she's a first calf heifer until she calves now she becomes a cow so that's a simple simple deal Wait, with say that part again she's a what so she's a heifer she's a heifer until she calves and then she becomes a cow how does that calf become a heifer that just cat, grows up just, as a female. You, yeah, you keep replacement heifers. You know, you, you'll say, man, I, I like this heifer, this heifer, this heifer. I want this genetics to stay in my herd. Or no, I'm going to color and send her on. And a lot of times feedlots now are spaying heifers as well because they have less problems. They don't have the hormonal problems in a feedlot situation. Heifers on a feedlot situation also grade usually higher than steers do. They don't, they don't get as bully right they don't get as massy they don't get as thick but they grade really well and they fatten well spayed heifers do right i, I don't like heifers to in a feedlot unless they are spayed that's that's just my preference i think most guys would feel the same way um so are the are the boy calves castrated and become become steers because that cowboy or that herd owner that cattle owner does not need that many breeding bulls so he's yes. going to cut their you know He's, what's off. You bet. They become a steer. And what is the what is the main life cycle of that steer to be? Is that what you're looking at to slaughter for food down the road? That's what you're looking at to slaughter, slaughter for food. So a steer is going to finish and marble much better than a bull. A bull has all the masculinity, right? Because he still has his testicles intact. So he has all the testosterone. So his front end gets massive. His, his back end gets massive. He gets huge. You can't have that on a feeder steer, right? We're trying to take these steers to 1,250 to 1,400 pounds, depending on their frame size, right? But a bull, he keeps growing and keeps eating. He just keeps getting bigger and bigger. They're not efficient to feed. Plus... It's the same principle. You kill this big old whitetail buck, even if he's eating really good feed and he's an old buck coming back down, he typically, typically is not going to eat like that two-year-old, right, as far as taste-wise. Same with a bull. Most, most bulls are just, you know, got a lot of gristle, a uh, lot tougher, you know, a lot of testosterone in it. So steer wrestling then steer is, wrestling only because, is only because they have horns. Otherwise, you could do it with cows, but you got to have the horns to grab you have the horns. And they stay into size because they lose their, their testicles. So all of those steer that are getting wrestled by these big cowboys don't have balls. No, but they're not all steers. They're not all steers. They're not all steers. See, this is so confusing. Okay, so, the cowboy so, way is so confusing. So in, in the horn cattle business for roping and steer wrestling, you have Coriana cross cattle, which is a Spanish breed. Corianas have horns. Most of them are Corianas that they're being roped. The heifers and the steers get horns. 
so you can rope or steer wrestle either heifers or steers. Most of them use steers just because they don't have those hormonal problems in their pen or their lot or wherever they're having. They just got all cut males that are out there. But they could be steers or heifers with horns. But you don't right? do it with bulls because the bulls are growing too big because they're they still have big. all the testosterone in there yeah, because they have their balls. Yeah. I mean, it's... it. Make no mistake, steer wrestling, that's a hell of a man to do that. Oh, my right? gosh. I would never do and, it. And even the size sometimes always doesn't matter. Depends on just, just like just like the man, right? Yeah. You got these little guys that are, that are monsters, shit. right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, typically they're big, big men, like a, a lineman football player, right? But think of the athleticism that guy's got to have to ride at full speed and jump off a perfectly going horse, which if anybody's re- ever rode a horse at a full lope as fast as you can go. You don't want to fall off them. You don't want to fall off them. It's no. the scariest thing and these guys are jumping off of them. Yeah, they're just it's amazing sport. Yes. I mean, it's steer wrestling is so bad at eye hand coordination, timing, flexibility, the the ability to control that horse and go down that line and maybe have to sidestep a little bit to follow that steer, but and then the timing of when do you come off it and then having your hands and your arms in position to get the right tuck and the right hold and then and there you got to use your body weight and your balance and your counterbalance and your equilibrium and your muscles and your core strength to now flip it over and I mean it's just a freaking it, they're freaks of nature when you see it done right you're just like oh, it's man fast. that's badass that is badass that's and badass. I, I always come back to it I look at these guys I look at these steer wrestlers and they're jumping off that horse at that speed and that steer is 400 450 right a lineman in professional football maybe does not weigh that much <laughs> no. right and does not have that kind of power behind them uh-uh. the neck on that steer has got more muscle than he's got right and these guys are doing it right so they're athletes make make no mistake and most people don't think of it that way but i, I do right oh God. i mean i got run, i get run over by you know three four hundred pound cattle all the time right yeah i mean most cattlemen do it's not something you want to do but things happen right 100 so cows run you over and everything else so those are the bullfighters out there uh you know that that's just a uh, that's a whole different element right i mean two thousand pound bull running at you with that kind of speed and power there ain't an nfl guy alive that hits as hard as that bull does no there's nothing even remotely Uh, there now that the pbr is in it and they do sports science on a lot of this stuff and they're if you read the reports of the energy out the energy output just that yeah. of how much energy is being put out by these buck and bulls or these steers or whatever it will blow your mind the oh, yeah. the force of impact what can you know the, the the rate in which they can just flip a switch and turn the other way um, the way that they can have their neck to the right and their body to the left and and then the way that they can buck the way that they can the way that they can get their body in the air off of the ground as far as a just a vertical jump goes like if you look there's 36 to 48 inches of bulls off of the ground with their back feet that's freaking crazy to me you think about that like you you think about michael jordan and the guys that that were known as jumpers or the walter paytons that can move and cut and then you got the guys like mike trout that's got the power that can hit the ball and eye hand coordination or a a world-class ping pong player all of that mixed into one then you got a swimmer that's got the long you know the 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 lungs and the ability to go forever right his stamina her stamina that's a brahma bull that's a rodeo animal it's crazy to think then you got to take a cowboy or a cowgirl that can counter all of that 
at to, to breed success. That's why it's the cool. I mean, it's the baddest ass. That in wrestling are like the oldest school forms of sports and competitiveness in the world. Absolutely. Wrestling goes back to the Greco days, the Roman days. Rodeo goes back to the, the to the oldest days of, of Europe and America. Absolutely. So when you mix all of that, man, it's just a cool ideology to think that you could have animals doing that. And then you can have animals over here being fed to humans and the the whole process of what cattle do and what horses do and what you're doing with these feed blends and the proprietary blends, I keep saying, because it really is a masterpiece to get the results that you're getting on all of those different levels from your horses to your family cattle to your deer to your elk and now to this going to commercial, going to market with a beef product, American ham and beef, that people are going to go, holy smokes, give me more. And it's going to be our job to get them more because I promise you, people aren't going to want to quit eating it once they taste it one time. I, I hope you're right, Chad. I feel the same way. I'm, I'm looking forward to this business and looking forward to expand, right? And, uh, yeah, we're, we're looking looking to the future here. So hopefully it comes quickly. Yep. I can't wait for it. I'm, I'm excited. We should end this one with a Chris Ledoux song. I'm going to have to get a hold of the Chris Ledoux family and ask him for permission to <laughs> you use hold that tight one. with a leather fist. That's Watch out song. when he starts to twist. Yeah. That's what the daddy used to tell them boys on how to ride them bulls. Yeah. I got a jingle in my jeans, sore places in between. Oh, my God. He's, I used to go to Chris Ledoux concerts like from 93 until he passed. Right. We got to know Bo. We got to know Ned. We got to know his kids. They'd work the merch booths. They'd come up here. They'd play Carson City, play the Reno Rodeo like every year. It'd be, you know, Blackhawk would open for Chris Ledoux or Little Texas. I mean, Chris Ledoux. And then they got to that point to where he'd bring that buck and bull on stage and he'd ride it on that song, Eight Second Ride. Right. And he just lived it, man. He was yeah. a he was a pure American badass that literally like blew up because the biggest name ever in music, Garth Brooks, not just country music and all the music, all music, sold more records than anybody, sold more concert tickets than anybody now, I think. He he got Chris Lee out there and they became fast friends. They and then when he passed, you know, Garth was on a hiatus for twenty years. One of the only performances he did in that twenty years while he was watching his kids grow up was when Chris passed. He went on read a letter from his wife and then did a little concert a little uh tribute to him. So I, I, I just I love the culture and the lifestyle of the American cowboy, and that's why I'm excited about it. Is that going to the properties and seeing the cattle and seeing the dogs work and seeing the, you know the, all the feedlots and then tasting the beef? I want people to understand that this is about culture. It's not about mass production. It's about the story. It's about the compassion for these animals. They're well taken care of, and a lot of science and study and research and wherewithal and sweat equity and long nights and figuring out what works and what. Doesn't doesn't work has gone into what we're getting ready to bring to the market. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say, Chad, that you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly perfect. That's yeah. Brandon Byrne, American Am and Beef. Check us out very soon on Instagram at American Am and Beef or Almond Beef, AmericanAlmondBeef.com. We're so excited to bring this product to you guys. Look for it in stores, in restaurants, online again at American Almond Beef. Brandon's story is amazing. I absolutely love sitting down with him. I've learned so much from him of about cattle and land and pasture and grazing and feedlots and slaughterhouses and, and everything that goes into what it takes to build a Western American company like American Almond 
Wyoming beef and try to take it national. The, I've had the pleasure of eating the steaks and the ground beef on my burgers or pasta sauce, meatballs, you name it. It is amazing. It's different. It's got a taste that's going to leave you wanting more. I'm so glad that y'all joined us for our first ever edition, first episode of the Dickies Workwear podcast. Our guest today was Mr. Brandon Byrne from American Almond Beef. We have people coming up that build swimming pools, people that fly planes for a living, guys and girls that are teachers. And like I said, so many different walks of life coming. We even have a guy that sells ice cream, just had a vision to start his own ice cream company in the great state of Nevada. So here we are. It's Dickie's Workwear Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Billing. Thank you all so much for tuning in for that episode. I can't wait for you all to see what we have coming down the chute. It's going to be awesome. Thank you, Dickie's, for making us a part of your family. We can't wait to find out where everybody we talk to is working and how much they love to do what they do on a daily basis. Keep working hard, America. We were put on this earth to work. I hope their work ethics are stronger than ever right now. We're going to come out on top as a country, as a society, as a community. It's on like Donkey Kong. Again, the Dickies Workwear Podcast. We'll see you all next time. I'd rather be Gonna do when the money's all gone. Yeah, but now.